0: You're listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, the strike at CN may be over, but it's going to take some time for the railway company to fully resume pre-strike operations. CN's Executive Vice President of Corporate Services sheds light on the company's recovery plan. And later, a developer perspective on some of Vancouver's new housing policies. First, tickets are now available for BIV's 40 Under 40 Awards Gala. You can join us January 30th at the Westin Bayshore as we celebrate young entrepreneurs, professionals, and executives from a wide range of sectors. Profiles of this year's cohort are available this week in print and online starting Tuesday. For tickets, visit biv.com slash events. And on February 4th, a conversation with UK Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham, a name recognizable here in BC as she's also BC's former Privacy Commissioner. She'll be joining our Editor-in-Chief Kirk LaPointe to talk about privacy going mainstream, the ethical implications of AI and holding multinational corporations to account for privacy and data breaches. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. For more information on that event and all of our events, and for tickets, visit biv.com slash events. After an eight-day strike, CN and the union representing more than 3,000 striking workers announced a tentative agreement last week. Now, it has yet to be ratified, but workers are back on the job. CN has also announced a recovery plan to resuming operations post-strike. Sean Finn, Executive Vice President of Corporate Services and Chief Legal Officer at CN, joins me now to talk more about that plan. Sean, welcome back to the show and thanks so much for coming on
1: thanks very much it's great to be back
0: now before we get to that path to recovery I think it's worth talking a little bit about what exactly operations are recovering from so tell me how did the strike impact CN operations
1: sure uh, Haley well as you know um, um, we were on strike for eight days at that it ended last Tuesday morning uh, by the by CN and the uh, our 3,200 conductors arriving at a tentative agreement for the nickel back to work, which will be uh, ratified by the members um, uh, of the conductor union uh, in the coming uh, coming months. Um, you know, as a strike, um, you know, uh, it's never a uh, uh, an easy situation. It was tough for our employees during the eight days those who were on strike and those who were working, because we had, um, you know, engineers and other employees were still working during the work disruption, and uh, we were operating, you know, during the eight days at about 10% of our normal capacity, and we're doing so with, uh, you know, almost 400 um, um, management railroaders replacing uh, 3200, which you cannot do. You now That's not sufficient to eat the railway running. So, you know, as we were getting into the strike period, we, uh, you know, were, were in a uh, mode of trying to uh, reduce demand of trains we had operating we made sure we parked our trains in areas where uh when we would start up again we could recover quickly uh and we were delivering cars we delivered were 57 grain trains during the strike you know we delivered propane to quebec uh, we did deliver uh, other products uh, for our customers so we were not at the level we could even expect to be at but we were not uh, totally shut down as um, the tender agreement came into place last tuesday uh, two things happened uh, on tuesday afternoon um, A portion of our 3,200 conductors who were on strike came back to work, and these are people who run trains on the main line. We had up to 156 trains parked in different spots on our main line safely we had to get them running again so we had to get people out there on those trains and have them moving uh but we had planned you know the recovery so it was done in a pretty structured fashion and by you know friday or the weekend we were down to no trains staged or parked because of the strike there might be a train stage in vancouver uh, waiting for a ship to be uh, to be positioned to unload a grain train but uh, there were no trains left uh, uh, parked uh because of the strike that was on tuesday afternoon last week and then wednesday morning at 6 a.m uh, the balance of our conductors came back, and these are conductors who do switching in yards, but also bring cars uh, to our to sidings or facilities our customers, or customer facilities, or pick up empty cars and bring them back. So those are what we call local switchers. And uh, you know there was a lot of backlog. There were a lot of cars in various yards that had to be switched and uh, delivered to customers or empty cars picked up. And that was started on Wednesday morning. That's a longer portion of uh, the recovery because it's you know it's it's uh, it's an art, not a science, to make sure we do. The this, right and the challenge is you know to create fluidity on our main line which is like our arteries where the all the traffic uh, is traveling on the main line without creating congestion in our yards because you can send too many trains into a yard and if you congest the yard you have a hard time uh, getting out of there because you have no room to switch or you know in vancouver you know in thornton yard every train going into vancouver goes to that yard you need to keep room in the yard for throughput trains but also you need room in the yard to switch trains and build trains so you you know, our friends, our, our colleagues at Edmonton have been working very hard at the operations center to make sure that we create capacity, that we catch up uh, after the eight days of, uh, of reduced service, and we do so without creating congestion in the yard. Because, you know, the instinct is to throw you know more people, more locomotives, more cars at the problem, and that can just create congestion, and if you're not careful, uh, you know, you can really clog up a yard to the point where you can't serve the customers until you clean it up, and that's uh, we I'll avoid that. So as we speak, um, you know, it's it's been almost a week now, six days. Uh, the reports are we're current when it comes to trains operating on the main line, but we're not- yet when it comes to serving our customers' facilities or their sidings, We have another 10 days or at least two weeks to get there, Uh, but uh, it's going well and we're making sure that our employees are working safely. And we're thanking all the employees who are about to work, including those who are not on strike who are working, you know, extra hard to make sure our customers uh, get their goods, uh, get their cars cars delivered, but also pick up empty cars.
0: Now, of course, to your point, the economy continues around the reduced workflow that you had at CN over these eight days. What happens to business products, goods that are sort of in transit to your facilities or goods that were already on your network. And then there's a stoppage. Is there any kind of backlog that you have to clear? Tell me a bit about that process.
1: Yeah, what is a stoppage? Uh, But I'll say during the strike, uh, we were very um, um, effective in moving intermodal trains, for example, out of Vancouver uh, to destination because those are containers. And uh, you know, uh they're in our yards, wanna move them for customers' benefit to their facilities and often this. Uh just-in-time inventory. The thing about containers, if you don't deliver them by train, they'll get delivered by a truck. So we were very focused on making sure we continue to serve our intermodal customers. And I must say the, the managers did a good job, uh, you know, in making sure that those trains they kept on moving. Because, you know, when you clog up a yard, it's one thing, but a port is even worse because you can really impact, you know, a cat's reputation abroad. So uh, we were working with our with our port partners in Vancouver to make sure that uh, we kept on running their intermodal trains. And that, that uh, goes to your question about, you know, goods in transit uh, a lot of smaller businesses or uh, big big box uh, stores rely on intermodal uh, as a way of getting their goods to uh, to their distribution centers and we were focused on not just moving that but because they're longer trains uh, they're a bit easier to handle there's less uh, there's less uh, a lot of the uh, the uh, the work is done around the yards at a port on loading those trains onto uh, Onto a, a long train, so we got those to keep on moving. So I think that most customers, you know, there were, you know, some of the customers on the on the commodity side, uh, the bulk customers. Uh, You know, probably felt a bit more of the strike, but I mean, it's not, uh, it wasn't an excuse. We didn't pick winners or losers. It's a question of what trains we could move with the people we had. And in some cases, uh, you know, why do we have to move the intermodal trains? I thought we would have clogged up the Port of Vancouver, which you don't want to do in any case because that you won't recover from very quickly if you do that. So there was a conscious decision made to make sure that we kept uh, those ports fluid and available to take goods off a ship and then get them on the main line. So I think that, you know, um, the The service was not where it could have been. Some customers obviously suffered and we want to thank our customers for their for their patience and their understanding during the strike as well as our employees, our stakeholders and our port partners because they worked with us to try and make sure that we kept up enough that when the railway came back we would be able to recover relatively quickly which we're doing as we speak.
0: On the topic of the port, the CEO of the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority recently said that by their calculation a stoppage at CN like the one we saw if it lasts for about a week it costs the Canadian economy about a hundred million dollars in loss GDP per week has CN quantified the economic impact of a stoppage?
1: Yeah, just after a week, we haven't had a chance. Uh, we've been busy trying to get the oh, railway course. back, but but uh, you know, um, you know, I think uh, uh, Robin Sylvester says it well. We all know that. Uh, you know, the railways are crucial to uh, to Canada's trade, to enabling trade in Canada. We don't take that responsibility lightly. We focus on it. Um, we will, would have um, tried to avoid a uh, labour disruption. It wasn't possible, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, we're happy that we got back as we got back because I don't think the Canadian economy could afford to go much longer like that. So it just shows you uh, the importance of the railways. It's up, up to us. Again, we don't take that lightly, but uh, it does show the importance we play in, uh, you know, in our trade uh, corridors in Canada, and it's up to us to now catch up as quickly as we can because, uh, you know, um, the impact of the economy, you know, could be important, but I think if we keep on moving the goods and catch up relatively quickly, it's a way to mitigate that impact. But we have not quantified neither the cost to us of the strike nor the cost to the Canadian economy, but, uh, you know, just by the amount of of, uh, of, uh, cost we've had with customers and people telling us, you know, where they were in their supply chain deliveries, how tight it might have been, just goes, just showed us again, that's important what we do every day. And, you know, our responsibility is to make sure that goods get to market because it's important for our customers, but also very important for Canada's economy.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned 10 days, two weeks until operations potentially resume where they were pre-strike. What are the priorities now? What are the final steps that remain to be checked off the list?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We don't. Uh, we don't pick commodities. We try and move trains. That's our secret here to make sure that we move all the trains we can. Uh, the priority now is to the local switchers, making sure that our customers, you know, out of the yard in the yard are getting their empties to fill again, or vice versa, moving their their loaded out that didn't get picked up during the strike. So, uh, as long as our main line remains our main line remains fluid, and we're you know we're going out to the to the smaller lines and branch lines in an organized, structured fashion to pick up our customers' uh, cars. Uh, or switch their facilities. You know, if it's done in a disciplined fashion, we keep it going, and it's and it's structured. We'll avoid having congestion. So our focus again is the next ten days to two weeks to make sure we do so safely. and you know, we'll We don't get any corners. We told our employees, listen, this is a this is difficult work. It's uh, it's an additional workload to catch up on the backlog, but we must do do so in a safe fashion because safety is a core value at CN and it's something we don't compromise on. And secondly, that we do so, you know, based on the capacity of our network to. To, to take this up. And I think that, uh, you know, I got a report this morning, it's been uh, six days, uh, I would say we're a bit ahead of who we want to be at this stage already, but uh, I don't want to create expectations we can't deliver on. So, you know, we, we're confident that, you know, 10 days or two weeks, will be quite caught up. There might be the odd customer who gets, you know, served uh, once a week in some branch line somewhere where we haven't got out to him or her. But uh, we're focused on it. We'll do so as quickly as we can.
0: Well, Sean, appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Always a pleasure, Haley. And if you want to talk again in the next 10 days, uh, let us give you a more recent update as we get along uh, on the recovery. And we'll see where we are in about a week or 10 days.
0: That sounds great. That's Sean Finn, Executive Vice President of Corporate Services and Chief Legal Officer at CN. Vancouver City Council recently passed a number of housing-related policies, and many of them geared at developing more rental housing in the city. Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group, joins me now to share his thoughts. Jason, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming on.
2: Always my pleasure.
0: Let's start with that bump to Vancouver's empty homes tax. Next year it will be at 1.25%, up from 1%. What do you make of that increase and what it might achieve?
2: Um, Well, I guess this doesn't come as a major surprise given that uh, um, our mayor um, campaigned on an increase actually considerably more than this. So it was scaled back from, I I guess, one of his platform items, but, uh, you know, still uh, a lofty increase on a tax, um, uh, which, of course, is in addition to the provincial uh, tax of the same uh, variety. So, you know, you're now looking at, anywhere from one75 to 3.25% if you happen to be an individual who owns a home that is not their primary residence and has not elected to rent it out. Uh, so a second home for anybody in the city of Vancouver um, has become very, very expensive to hang on to.
0: Fair enough. And it also looks like there are provisions to continue with increases, again, of not a lot, but when you're talking about very expensive homes, it adds up. It looks like 0.25% in 2021 and, again, in 20. 20- Twenty-two. So I guess we're seeing, would you say, a layering on of taxes, even if they do seem very incremental?
2: Yeah, I mean, and I guess fundamentally, um, you know, these these taxes were put in place to try and discourage uh, folks from simply uh, parking um, money and occupying real estate that could otherwise provide housing Uh, but it becomes it becomes at some point a philosophical question of okay well if we've achieved that goal or if that was the goal and um, at what point do we say enough's enough and somebody should have the right um, to own uh, you know a condo in the city for, for when they're in town for business or if they live in the suburbs and they want somewhere to go after a night in the city of, uh, uh, you know, socializing or whatever, and whatever the case may be, at some point, uh, you know, s- there becomes a philosophical question of what should it cost somebody the luxury of having that? When you look at these numbers, I, I started just quickly doing some math here. If we just pick the median price of all housing types in City who Vancouver, roughly $1.8 million, if you're a... a- Canadian resident. That means you could be you could live in in White Rock and you own a condo or a property somewhere in the city. Here, uh, in addition to your property taxes, uh, your regular property taxes, you're going to pay um, upwards of thirty two million or thirty two thousand dollars on top of your regular property taxes, utilities, et cetera, et cetera, just to have your property that you've always owned and that's been in, in maybe in your family for a while uh, available to use on the weekends or what have you. At what point is enough enough? And I, and I think that's the question as a, as, a, as a city and as a society that we are really grappling with at this point.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. That That's a lot of extra money. You can see how some people might make the decision, you know what, it's, it's not worth it. I'm going to sell that home. $32,000 a year can get you a, a lot of things. It might not be worth it for some people, or some people may not actually have that choice. Maybe they do need to keep it and just have to stomach that cost. I don't know.
2: Yeah, well, and, 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 you know, it's really interesting to keep in mind, I think, a few other kind of key points when we talk about things like, well, you know, it seems like, well, you know, somebody with the luxury of a second home. Well, the reality is, is that it's very likely that someone who has this property, you know, either bought it or or inherited it many 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 years ago where the value of it is is far from what it is today um, and, and in most jurisdictions, or, or certainly a lot of jurisdictions around North America, property taxes are not necessarily always floating with these assessed values as they are today. They, they in, in a lot of major cities, uh, you know, if something so significant happens on the property, they will value it, you know, it's redeveloped or significantly upgraded. But then it's pegged to some degree to, to inflation or, or CPI, or some other metric. It doesn't necessarily just float with the value of a home, because of course some Someone who's owned a property a very, very, very long time, you know, ends up paying a whole bunch more taxes, whether it be property taxes or something like this. And and actually, uh, they may not have anywhere near the income to support these taxes and either start deferring them, which means they're just eating away at the, uh, at the equity that's in the property, um, or uh, they end up having to sell. And that's, you know, it's kind of an awkward situation where we're imposing taxes to try and you know solve some problem but we're actually creating a problem by doing it and that we're forcing people to sell properties that they bought a long time ago simply because they can't afford the tax burden that is that has gone through the roof as a result of many things but not the least of which is continuing uh, new taxes and increases increases on existing ones.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's right we're also seeing an increase generally to property taxes from the city. Of Vancouver, so even if you're occupying your home, you're going to be paying a little bit more in taxes next year as well.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, it's 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 an interesting conversation around um, around you know budgeting and everything else. You know, uh, you know, generally speaking, in Vancouver, we have relatively low um, tax rates, but we have been seeing significant moves this is year over year now last year a 4.5% increase to the uh, property taxes this year we're looking at a proposed 8.2% increase um it's concerning um that it seems as though, you know, spending at city halls uh, and at the government level seems to be increasing because we also need to keep in mind that not only are each of us that own property in the city of Vancouver being asked to pay incrementally more, we're doing that at a time where our city is actually growing quite considerably too. So we're, we're adding densification into the city and yet asking everybody to pay more each year which which means that city halls are, are the spending is increasing even more at a, at a higher rate than what they're asking us to kick in for uh, for our property taxes.
0: Well you mentioned densification and some of the new policies out from Vancouver City Hall do address and do enable some densifications such as allowing small apartment buildings in certain single family areas specifically those near parks and schools and other services. Do you think that this is a right step toward enabling more supply will this potentially move the needle a little bit
2: yeah these policies are great i mean uh, you know, the city's been uh, been working on it very hard in their housing group and their planning group has been working very hard at trying to uh clarify some of their existing policies and make some changes i think to uh, to uh improve some of them and certainly um that's a great thing and we do need to look at ways to remove barriers to the creation of new housing and and, and specifically rental housing because we see um, across the board there are there are pressures uh, that make uh, construction of rental housing very difficult land cost being one of them so uh, opening up new opportunities for land that has not been um, you know you know driven up in price for other reasons, whether it be for, for speculation or, or investment in condo development. You know, that that does certainly help, the, you know, uh, make rental housing pro formas work potentially a little better. It's, it's not an easy proposition. But on the flip side of that, what we're looking at with these with these increases in property tax uh, sort of do a disservice to all the work that these groups are doing to try and incent uh, the development community and, and create programs to enable creation of new rental housing, because one of the single biggest uh, uh, operating expenses that landlords look at in their pro formas is, of course, property taxes. Uh, I had a quick look at uh, one of our operating statements and property taxes in the city of Vancouver Hover anywhere between uh, 25 to 35 percent of the total operating budget for a building, and that is a, that's the single biggest line item in an operating budget for a rental building. And of course, when you're looking at 8.2 percent increases to your property tax bill, yet we have provincial legislation that limits the increase on rent to two and a half percent annually. This, the, you can see how this quickly creates a problem. that you compound that with a four percent, well, 4.5 percent increase in 2019. We quickly look at uh, the, we, we see a scenario where the increases of 2.5% annually are completely wiped out entirely by property tax increases alone, and that doesn't account for any inflationary items on on maintenance and, and capital expenditures and other utility costs and, you know, uh, natural gas, all these types of things that go into a building. So while we are doing some great things on the planning and, and policy front to try and encourage new rental housing, uh, uh, you know, on the heels of... A property tax announcement like this, I think it undoes a lot of that great work because um, it's already very difficult to make these projects uh, financeable and and, uh, financially feasible. And uh, operating expense, control of operating expenses right now is one of the biggest uncertainties that we face.
0: One of the things we've spoken about before, just the, the time it takes to actually build a building and some of the hurdles that developers need to overcome when it comes to licensing and permits and delays at city halls in the region. One of the new policies has to do with pre-zoning for some rental apartments, which our mayor in Vancouver says will shave off a year or more potentially in the development process. How does that work? And do you think that this could actually cut down development times significantly?
2: It could. And, and I don't know that it's um, what, what's, what's being discussed, you know, in some instances, maybe pre-zoning uh, or inclusionary zoning, which which means uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's Specifically identified to be rental uh, in in area plans. Now, not that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's currently zoned. But there's furthermore, what they're discussing is actually using uh, off-the-shelf zoning, so to speak. Meaning you're not having to kind of create a specific zoning, what we call a comprehensive development zone for each individual project, which which opens up a lot of of. Uh, um, I guess it puts a lot of question marks into the process, which does take a little bit longer. And the suggestion might be that we use some of the city's existing zoning districts, uh, whether it be the the RM zones or or what have you, to try and streamline and create greater clarity in the process Uh, and It should help, for sure, in expediting uh, the approvals, given that we can now communicate very clearly to the public this is an RM5 proposal. Uh, Here are the the, the district uh, regulations for RM5. And, And also on the developer side, if you know that piece of property you look at, uh, is, is supportable in rezoning to RM5 as an example again. Uh, that provides you a lot of clarity, but you still do have to go through the process. There's still a public hearing, there's still public consultation that's going to happen. So although I do expect that it may help um, uh, the timelines to a limited degree it's not going to I don't think it's going to uh, drastically change that overall time frame.
0: The final policy I want to get your thoughts on is rental only zoning along certain main streets in Vancouver. Again, I'll put the question to you. How does that work and what are some of the implications in terms of developing these important corridors in Vancouver?
2: Um, it can work if it's used uh, correctly as a tool and and, uh, and I will give credit to, uh, to Vancouver specifically they have um, taken the provincial legislation that was was given in terms of creating uh, uh, rental tenure uh, zoning and applied it uh, in our in our thinking in, in the correct way and that is to try and invent and create new um, uh, regulations specifically for uh, rental development that actually um, in most cases, is you know higher densities uh height relaxations or higher heights um and this is what you need to do if you're going to create rental tenure zonings um they have to they have to offer a significant benefit over other market types of of density whether it be commercial or or uh condominium uh, residential condominium density because that's what it takes you simply can't uh um you know, be saddled with the market cost of, of say, condominium uh, um, land pricing, and try and make rental developments work. It doesn't work. Uh, so they are introducing these new rental tenure zonings, which have generally higher densities than their uh, their condo cousins, so to speak. And it, it it is certainly a helpful tool to try and facilitate some new rental uh, development. And um, you know, uh, we'll see what the impacts of things like property taxing uh, hikes, and certainly any changes in interest rates, as we look further into the future um it it could it could it could result that a lot of this uh, a lot of this good work being done by housing and planning at the city uh struggles to come to fruition because it's so sensitive to things like operating expense increases and interest rate changes
0: fair enough does that arrangement preclude there being any kind of commercial on the first two floors does it need to be rental only or can it be mixed use
2: uh, no, my understanding is that, um, several of the zonings, um, are, are contemplating, uh, rental tenure, but they, 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 still can be mixed use and, oh. and certainly along major arterials, that is still going to be expected and encouraged that you still have retail at grade at least uh, not always on the second floor but it uh, could be um, uh, but that's just good urban planning generally speaking and I, I would see that continuing you certainly want to encourage uh, street fronting retail in in densely uh, populated neighborhoods
0: Jason is always a pleasure having you on the show thanks so much for coming on with your insights
2: you bet my pleasure
0: that's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. You can also listen to all of our episodes at biv.com/ audio. For more business news visit biv.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.